Welcome to the Faith with Haith podcast and welcome to 2021. This is our first episode in this brand new year and I wanted to begin the year with something rather different and really very special. My guests on the podcast this week are Red and Dorothy McDaniel. Red is the nickname of Eugene McDaniel. This interview actually took place in May 2017 at my former church just outside Washington, D.C. It was on the Memorial Day weekend. And theirs is the story of ultimate suffering, but of faith that shines through. So let's listen in together. On this Memorial Day weekend, it is my honour to introduce to you Naval Captain Eugene McDaniel, better known as Red. Red, would you come and join me up on the stage here? I am so excited for you to hear his story here today. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. Please take a seat. Thank you. Now, I'm not a military man myself, as you can probably tell, but uh, you were... At that moment, I just wanted to sort of pipe you aboard the stage or something at that, at that moment. But um, let's begin at the beginning. You grew up in North Carolina, the oldest of eight children, uh, the son of a tenant tobacco farmer. And growing up, your father told, told you that you could either plough or play. What's that all about? My father, being a sharecropper... Uh... Just hold that up. There you go. This should be ready to go. Gave me the option of plowing or playing, and guess what I did? <laughs> I played uh, every sport that came down to pike. Played three sports in high school, two in college. Graduated from both almost untouched by education. <laughs> but, Jamie, I'm impressed with what a beautiful, young, vibrant, and beautiful conversation congregation you have. Oh, that's Very so impressive. kind. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's because I'm so beautiful and young and vibrant. <laughs> that, has, that has something to do with it. Um, so you were the first to attend college in your family. You had an athletic scholarship. And uh, what was your specialty when you were at college? Uh, base, baseball, baseball. baseball, basketball, baseball primarily. Amazing. I was a catcher, the to- uh, what call them the tools of ignorance. So. What's that? You, know, you get the... Oh, yeah. All the, all the, all the, all the foul tips. So. <laughs> And it was in college in your freshman year that your faith in Christ came alive. Yes, I did. I, I met a young lady, uh, September 1950. A minister's daughter. Met her on, uh, on the church staffs my first night in college. And we dated for six years and been together for now 67 years. So, 67 years. Amazing. And, and then you joined the Navy post-college, and you're ticking the box that you wanted to become an aviator. We have a few airmen in the, uh, in the room today. It must, be, it must be an amazing feeling having the freedom of the skies, taking what off. What it is, it's, uh, when I used, I used to go out of the house, my daughter Leslie and my number two son, David, would ask me if I was going out and scratch the sky today. So, but it was a, a, great, a great challenge to be uh, flying was an extension of athletics. And I joined the Navy to become an aviator, and I'd never flown in an aircraft. So So you had no idea what it would be like? No idea, but thought I would enjoy the challenge. Did did you ever feel sick? Pardon? Did you ever feel sick? Oh, no, no, no. I uh, never did. That's amazing. I do. (laughs) So, So... 
then the conflicts in Vietnam started to escalate. May, by May 19th, 1967, you'd flown 80 sorties with your navigator Kelly in your A6 intruder. I think we have a photograph of your plane right there. You were heading home in just two weeks, back to the States in just two weeks, but then it all changed. Tell us what happened on sortie number 81. Well, the A6 was a, a night all-weather plane. We, it was state-of-the-art. We could drop a bomb within 15 feet of any given point whatever looking outside the cockpit. So our primary element was night and all-weather. But on May 19, 1967, more than 50 years ago, we... The Soviet premier came to town, Kosygin, came from Russia to Vietnam. It was Ho Chi Minh's birthday. Ho Chi Minh was their god. And we launched seven raids downtown Hanoi for a major escalation point in the war. And as we crossed the beach, we armed our weapons, uh, had 110 miles overland to get to target. And about 30 miles prior to the target, we were hit by the fourth of fifth missiles fired at my aircraft and the missile looks like a telephone pole coming up with a plume of smoke. But we had wings, it did not. If we could see the missile, we could outmaneuver it. And while we were dodging the fourth, we were hit by number five. And just uh, Memorial Day, uh, May 19th of this year, somebody posted on Facebook, the missile hitting my aircraft and me floating down in the jungles of North Vietnam, that brought back a lot of mem uh, vivid memories because my 50th anniversary was just May 19th, so. And on that day, it could have gone either way. My navigator, Lieutenant James Kelly Patterson, with whom I'd flown for some 18 months, I knew his every move, he knew mine. He's missing from that mission, but was alive on the ground for four days. And in my home on Friday, a father, 74, and a son, 41, had biked all the way across country on a bicycle, not a motorcycle, to honor Kelly Patterson and keep his name in the forefront. They wore his bracelet and POW memorabilia, and it brought back a lot of memories. But he is missing. Uh, we have since learned that he very well could have been sent to the Soviet Union, so he still could be alive. He's 12 years younger than me, so. Hmm. But I was shot down, and at that time, I was Macho Man, Top Gun pilot, star athlete, father of three children, active in my church. But up until that moment, age 35, my life had never been tested in a very real way. But on my ejection from Vietnam, I came down in a banyan tree, a banyan tree, oscillating back and forth about 40 feet above the ground, and I was not prepared to follow those 40 feet, so I looked around, and the only option I had, Jamie, was to climb up the rises of the parachute to reach the limb to go into the trunk and try to shimmy down. I climbed up, reached the limb, started into the trunk, it peeled away, and I fell 30 to 40 feet to the ground, and doing that, crushed two vertebrae in my back. And all my machoism, everything I had, was lost at that moment. I was in a new environment. I was in an environment where the enemy was coming to, to really capture me, in my case, really rescue me. But I asked God many times in that 26 hours on the jungle floor, God, why me? Why me, God? But then I was captured the second day, taken to Hanoi two days away. And en route to Hanoi, they put us on display 
on military bases and allowed the crowd one whack at us. They could hit us, they could throw a rock at us, they could spit on us, whatever they wanted, because they were very angry. We had bombed very heavily that day. And the day was known as Black Friday. We lost seven aircraft, 11 pilots, of which six of us survived, and the others did not. So that was uh, my introduction to the communist system. So you were taken to the Hanoi Hilton, as it became known, and what was your reception there? The Hanoi Hilton was a, it was a relief, really, after leaving the, the angry crowds, mm. getting into a prison, because I knew I'd be among a lot of friends. I was about the 200th pilot shot down wow. in Vietnam, and I knew I would see a lot of friends. And, of course, we were in isolation for in a one or two men per cell, and we went, initially went through two weeks of very brutal torture. Uh, even though I was partially paralyzed, that did not stop them. They tortured us for military information, which we did not have. But I survived that, and uh, brutal torture again in 1969, an escape attempt. Came home March 4th, 1973, and excellent health, testifying to God's great healing power. Six years. And only God can do that. You, you mentioned torture. Um, I don't know how graphic you want to be, but reading your book, Scars and Stripes, we've, um, we've got copies of this outside if you'd like to buy one. I'm, I'm sure you'd be happy to sign them as well. Yes. Um, how did you endure not just the torture, but the waiting for it, being in your cell, knowing that it's coming? What was the anticipation uh, in 1967 when I was shot down? Everybody was tortured. Early on in the war, the initial prisoners were not tortured. But after about a year, 1966, they went back and tortured all of them. And then in May 1967, the torture was probably the most severe because we hit, hit them very hard that day. And uh, the torture is uh, rope torture, been divided in ways it's not intended to bend, arms behind your back, elbows together, U-bolts on your legs with a nine-foot pole going through the U-bolts and a rope over a pulley into the vault and jerk it off the floor and uh, the result of that is you come out of that with no control of your hands because the enemy, the way they created pain was cut the blood flow off going to the lower extremities for about 30 minutes and then they released the ropes to blood flows and doing that you, I lost use of my hand for about 8 or 9 months on two different occasions and, and at the same time, you've, you're, you're going through this. You're, you know that your fellow prisoners are going through this. Yes. But we were talking earlier about how, how there's a hope between you because you can communicate with each other. There's a camaraderie there. You, you, there was a, there's an extraordinary system of communication within the prison, wasn't there? We did. We were, we were texting long before the kids today were. <laughs> we were texting on those walls, and that was my downfall. My book, Scars and Stripes, is built around an escape attempt in 1969, that men were looking for a rainy Saturday night because it rained, the lights would short out, and the barbed wire would not be charged around the camp. And on Saturday night, because I had a late bed check on Sunday, they checked us about 7 o'clock rather than 5.30 Monday through Saturday, and when they thought it would give them a little more lead time. So the plan was to get out of the camp, go over the outer wall, downtown Hanoi, where we were kept, get into the Red River, and float 110 miles to the coast. A desperate attempt, but we were desperate men. And my involvement in that was I lived in a room that had access to two camps. And my, my cell, 10 feet above the floor, had a little slit about 5 inches by 12 inches. 
and I could stand on the shoulders of my cellmate and communicate through that signal to a camp that I had lived. So I knew what you could see from that camp, and I had the only opening to that camp. So we established communications, and we could get a question and an answer back within 24 hours through 60 walls. And we were very sophisticated. But the escape occurred in one camp. They opted not to tell us until after the attempt. And that's why some 20 men were brutalized very and, and the code was, it was, it, I, I've seen it, it's in the book, isn't it? It's like a grid of numbers, number of taps. We had to square, we had to use a, a matrix, the alphabet, and you can't square 26 letters, so we dropped the letter K. So whenever we needed K, we could suffix C. C, yeah. And we had A through E, the next five letters, five columns created five lines. And we tapped in two groups. If I tapped three, two, third column, second line down, letter M. If I tapped five, five, all the way over to the right, the letter C. Yeah. I mean, that, I can't tell you how that boggles my mind. I would be the guy in the middle that forgot what he just heard and ruined the whole thing. I promise you I would. I really well, you, would. When you live in a vacuum, as we did, because we had no input uh, in Hanoi for six years, we lived in a total vacuum and... We established there, later in the war, we moved together in large sales, and we established what we call the Hanoi University. And everybody became an expert in something, because as a POW, you can make some very profound statements that cannot be proven nor disproven. <laughs> but we label everything we learned there as POW fact. And I learned in prison some French, German, Russian, Spanish, committed to memory some 65 different poems that I would repeat every day, East-West Ballad, Gungadin, just to, just to be active, because our major enemy was not torture or starvation, it was whiling away the minutes, the mm. hours, the days, the weeks, the months, mm. the years, in my case, 2,117 days. Mm. But, but, the, but the thing is, if you're on a sort of, for want of a better expression, normal prison sentence in a jail here, you know that this is your end date, and you know you might get some time off for good behavior. Being a POW, you have no understanding of you ever be left out, let, let out. So oh, what does that do to hope in you? You talk in the book about not letting the balloon go. Oh, yes. Well, uh, as an athlete, you have to be optimistic. You have to believe you're going to win to win. And I was, I've always been very optimistic. And in camp, I would tap down the wall signal through about six walls and back. Uh, men would ask me when we were going to go home. And my goal was two months. And whenever they would get down in spirit, they would tap down again. Red, we're going to go home in two months. Well, in six years, I lost a lot of credibility. <laughs> but they enjoyed hearing that. So. But the lesson I learned in 1969, uh, after two weeks of, of really uh, brutal torture, it's uh, kneeling on pity concrete for seven days, seven nights without sleep, lots of shock treatment, beaten daily with a fan belt, beaten for information I did not possess. And in that room, losing about 70 pounds, weighed probably around 110 pounds, there came a time, the only thing I had left was the will that says, hang on. And I gave my life to God and said, it's all yours, God, to do whatever you want. I have nothing more else to give. But the lesson I learned is this, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is simply the presence of faith. Mm. Courage, not the absence of fear, but the presence of faith. And with faith, 
And another thing we had as Americans, we have a sense of humor. Mm. Uh, two weeks after my shoot-down, they moved me in for my first bath. And in the tropics, in two weeks, you're ripe after two weeks of torture and oh. no sleep. They sat me in a, on a stool because I couldn't walk for my first shower. And there's a rusty pipe went over and they had a faucet where you turned the water on. And as I looked dead ahead, I saw somebody had written, smile, you own candy camera. <laughs> and with that, we got a little boost. And, and that's the thing that we have that kept us going. You had a Bible in the prison. Uh, we had a Bible uh, only on holidays for propaganda purposes. So I could tell the world we had a Bible. But when we got the Bible, we did not read from it, we would copy from it, and we would take our toilet paper, stick it together with glutinous rice, take a bamboo stick, file it down, and we needed ink, which we didn't have. We tried bitholating water, blood and water. The only thing that would work would be cigarette ashes and water. And in those days, we were getting three cigarettes and two bills, and it was three events because you were I was a non-smoker, but I took the cigarettes and I smoked them because I thought the height of optimism was a POW expecting to die of lung cancer. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we, did, we did stop that, but we, wrote, we would copy from the Bible, and then we would take it and commit that to memory. And we had one POW, Ralph Gaither, who committed to memory the book of Matthew. Wow. So after that, we always had scripture. Wow. And at night, we would hide our scripture in the walls. And the walls wow. were so dingy, we could cut out a place and stick it in there and get it out when the enemy was not there. So That's just astonishing. And that, that same ingenuity, um, you, you, you did bridge cards, you made a chess set. Okay. You, you, and you played chess for a whole week once. We had, we had uh, you know, if you were, the worst situation would be a three-man room, because if you had three men in a room, two would be against one. And you learn to never bring up a controversial subject until after you eat the rice and the, and the pumpkin soup. But you find that you play bridge, and if you can beat that man in chess, you're one up. Mm. And we would, would go for days making that next move. And, and you, 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 I've written it down, it's Ken Hina. You played Ken Hina at chess for a whole week. We did and at, uh, some games that lasted a week. And we also played, moved to, when we moved together in large rooms in 1970, we played, uh, we made cards from toilet paper. We knew what they were, but we pretended we didn't. <laughs> and I played duplicate bridge with Congressman Sam Johnson, who is now a congressman. We played duplicate bridge for two years every day with, with cards that were barked that we read. <laughs> and I uh, have not played a hand of bridge since leaving captivity because we... <laughs> Who won the game between the chess game between you and Ken? Can you remember? Uh, one summer lost that. <laughs> one summer lost So reading about the torture that you, you went through, that, I mean, it's, it's almost too much to read. Um, I found myself asking, how is it possible to then turn around and forgive these people? Because you also write later that you got a gift, uh, care package finally and you, and you gave a piece of candy to one of these guards and he didn't know what to do. How do you, how well, do you find that forgiveness? Well, I believe that when you are angry at other people, it destroys you, not them. And it was, uh, I prayed many times for the Vietnamese because it was a system of communism that they lived under that I disliked, not the people. They were beautiful people. Mm. 
And every night in the camp, they would have a rally. All the guards would gather around and talk politics, what they can do. And the next morning, they reflected what they were told that night. And if they told them to smile, they did. If they told them to frown, they did. But we would took advantage of that and could kind of read the guards. We were not allowed to speak Vietnamese. They would only have all the guards speak English to us, and they would learn English from us. But we, uh, so I learned to count Mo, Hai, Bu, Mu, four, five, and Vietnamese is a tonal language. Each word has about six different tones, and so I, I'm not very fluent in Vietnamese. Well, for all of the, um, the torture that you went through, meanwhile, 8,000 miles away, a very different torture was occurring, the torture of not knowing and waiting. Uh, please would you welcome to the stage Red's wife, Dorothy McDaniel, and she's going to chat with us now as well. Dorothy, you hold on to that. I didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen. Oh, come on. Because, I mean, it's, it's so important because obviously on this memorial weekend, we remember everybody that's involved in conflict. And uh, you know, Dorothy, up until this point that we're talking about here today, you had a happy family, enjoying life together. Um, I just need to ask, was it love at first sight when you first saw that man there? Love at first sight, no. Okay, fine. <laughs> but it didn't take much longer. Oh, good. So tell us, where were you when you first heard the news that Red had been shot down? Um, in my home in Virginia Beach. Um, someone came to the door and said, your husband is, has been shot down, but don't worry, he's alive on the ground and they'll pick him up any minute. But they didn't. <laughs> so it was six years later that we were fortunate enough to have him come home. And at what stage? Do you remember having to tell the children? Had three children? That was a tough one. Yeah. Um, it was really very hard. They were nine, seven, and four. Leslie was four. And the boys were seven and nine. And they were really pretty shaken by that. Mm -hmm. But um, we made it. Hmm. We survived. By the grace of God. On a family camping trip in the Blue Ridge just before this tour of duty, hmm. you tell the story about how you chased a bear out of the campsite screaming at it. Good for you, I say. That's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty impressive. It says a lot about you. you. Did read the book. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But the, but, People say they did when they didn't. But the thing that. <laughs> The thing that struck me is, at least with that, you've got, you've got something that you can scream at, you can yell at, you can chase away, whereas for six years, you had no present, nothing present for you to actually deal with. You had to just wait. Well, you know, I had three children, and I had to deal or regret it. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a blessing. I was reading your book, I was, I was astonished at the lack of action to get the POWs home. It was, a, it was quite a history lesson to me, but that all changed when you got involved. And, uh, and you, you wrote, the biggest fire is the one that gets the attention. What did you mean by that? Well, I think, you know, um, the powers that be expected us to sit quietly and wait. And we did not want to sit quietly and wait. Mm. We wanted to let people know that we were there 
that our husbands were being held prisoner. And so we made a lot of noise. Jimmy, to tell you what that war what, just went on and on. What great influence they had. They were coming they knew the issue a lot better than the politicians. Mm-hmm. One day they had Alexander Haig, Secretary of State, addressing about a hundred POWs, some whose husband had been missing for seven or eight years. And they began to pressure him and he began to fiddle in his pocket. And in filling in his pocket, he wore a hole in it, and his chains spilled out on the floor <laughs> of the Senate. So, they, but they were very powerful, and it was their effort that to the torture. 1969, the torture stopped because of the effort in this country by the wives, and they became a very powerful political force, probably the most powerful force the country's ever seen. Because That's a amazing. wife stands up, says, "Where is my husband after seven years?" That's amazing. Attention. We have a slide of you uh, at the uh, Don't Let Them Be Forgotten, Operation We Care. You got that from the door, yes. Looking we good. Had, we had time to get pretty vocal, and it was, it was not an unpatriotic thing to do. It, yeah. was, it was let's either win this war or come home and say we lost this war. Yeah. But you just don't stay forever and not win or lose. And that's what was going on in Vietnam. And because these men were there waiting yeah. all those years. And you had absolutely no idea where he was initially, the early years. And then you finally got a letter from him. Yes. We have a slide of that letter right here. Look at that. Dearest Dorothy, Michael, David, Leslie, I'm good in all respects, no permanent injuries. You are my inspiration. Children, work, study, help each other, be strong. Dorothy, I love you deeply. What did that feel like? Do you remember where, where you were oh, when you got that letter? Blessing, and it was really more than just a letter. It was a life insurance policy. Yeah. Because once the enemy allowed the man to write a letter, then you had proof in your hand that he was actually being held yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, until that time, we did not have that. They had never said, we hold him. We'd never had any acknowledgement of that. You know, it was wartime, so you can understand that. But to have that letter in your hand means someday... That's right. You know, someday you have to account for this person. And, and, the, and the postman delivering this, he was sorting the mail the night before, yes. and he saw the letter, he saw the postmark, and he came round that night. <laughs> and he came round that night. He did. He, he was sorting out the mail and um, realized that I had a letter from... My husband, who was in a POW camp, yeah. and he made a special trip out to my house that night to deliver that letter for me. Thank you for remembering that. And, and, then, and then you got to send other letters, and actually, I'm, I've got to share this, because this, this, Leslie wrote a letter, didn't you, Leslie? Leslie wrote a letter to, uh, what page is it? Here we go. So this is uh, Leslie, who's a, who's a member here, a wonderful uh, member. She said, Dear Daddy, <laughs> I hope you are having a nice time. <laughs> We, we, we are, are having... having a very nice time. <laughs> <laughs> and you wrote, if he gets this one, I said to myself, as I dropped Leslie's letter into the mail slot, he won't get much news, but perhaps he'll get a good laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and they did. And, and um, Leslie was known among the prisoners of war and for being the little girl that wrote her daddy. Aww. She hoped he was having a nice time. <laughs> 
but this is the most extraordinary story of a grassroots movement campaigning to defend the POWs and to bring them home. I was amazed at the, even the bracelet idea. We're so used to bracelets nowadays for different charities. I don't know, that, that could have even originated with you. I mean, that's extraordinary. Aluminium bracelets with the POW. group of college students that thought about, that yeah. dreamed up the bracelet. We were, um, we, we organized, we had plenty of time to organize, and we, we did. And we never knew if that was a good thing, that was going to help things, or if it was going to make it worse. Yeah. Never knew. But we knew we had to do something. And so we did become very vocal. And we had... Um, Headquarters, yep. little little shacks that were our headquarters throughout the country, and we got we got pretty well known during that Amazing. time. Now you you all are old enough to remember that, but I do. <laughs> Some of them are. Jamie, my my book printed 41 years ago was heavily edited, but her book are her words, and she has two movie offers, one out of London and one out of Hollywood on her stories. So. Go for the London one, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> the um. And then, six years, six years, 2,117 days, you finally saw a newscast with that face coming off a plane and walking down the... And that was when he was, he'd been released. What did that feel like to see yeah, it was, him? It was, it was relief, but it was also scary, because we had no idea what he would be like. Right. You know, if he would be in good health, or if we would have some major medical problems or yeah. issues that we had to deal with. So it was a mixed feeling, plus the fact that we were, I worried about, um, you know, how the reactions would be with the children mm. And, mm. and their father, because they didn't remember him, mm. very vaguely remembered him. My, Mike, our oldest son, was nine when he left. We have some photos of the, uh, the homecoming. Um, there's Red being welcomed, and there's you guys welcoming, looking good, Leslie. That's beautiful. Long hair and all. <laughs> he came home just as the teenager. Oh, that's right. So they all had long hair. hair grew long, and he kind of did a double take, I think, when he saw <laughs> his teenager. So, Red, you, you, since then, you, you went on to captain two ships. Um, the whole time bearing these scars of what you've been through physically, but also emotionally as well, did you... Can I ask you if you struggled with the memory of it, looking back? We hear a lot these days about PTSD and oh, struggling Jenny, psychologically. I've been very, very fortunate. I've only had one bad dream in my 44 years back. Only one night I woke up in a prison environment. But I've been very fortunate to be able to put that aside. And to say something about my wife, Dorothy kept my name in the forefront. And... Living in a vacuum as we did for six years, making no decisions for six years, coming home to a family, it took us about six, took me about six months to decide what kind of toothpaste to use. But she was able to ease me in. And my first, one of my first big decisions was to allow Leslie, who was 11 years old, to shave her legs. So. <laughs> Sorry. So she was a, uh, kept my name in the forefront, and it was, her role was much tougher than mine. Mine was physical, hers was psychological. Is he alive, yeah. or is he? Yeah. But uh, she hung in there and uh, did a remarkable job. You've both devoted your lives to America, campaigning 
tirelessly for freedom, be it for those who are still missing, or the need to, prevent the, to defend the, the privilege of freedom for us all. We're in, the, we're in the presence of true American heroes here today. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. After all, it was six years of free room and board. <laughs> he didn't I, lose his sense of humor. <laughs> I, could, I, could, I could just sit here all day asking you questions. Thankfully, you're coming for lunch, so be prepared. Um, and uh, it's just as well you're not in uniform today, Red, because I'm not sure all the medals would fit on your chest. You were awarded the Navy Cross, two Silver Stars, Distinguished Flying Cross, a whole host of other medals, including two Purple Hearts. And uh, it's extraordinary reading the citation for your Navy Cross, which um, just to see you, as, as it says, he heroically resisted these cruelties and never divulged the information de demanded by the North Vietnamese. His exemplary courage, maximum resistance and aggressiveness in the face of the enemy reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the naval service and the United States Armed Forces. Extraordinary courage, but what you say about courage is, uh, what did you say a moment ago? It's in the book, it's, it's not, not the... the absence of fear. Yeah. It's simply the presence of faith. Yeah. Faith replaces fear. I'd love to, in closing, I'd love to read, if it's uh, just a couple of excerpts from, from your book... Sorry, yeah, there's lots of little... I didn't know why... All, there's so many tags. In. Please, people say they read the book, but he really has. Please, and this is, this is Dorothy's book right here, After the Hero's Welcome, a POW's wife's story of the battle against a new enemy. And they're both available at the back, and they were very shy about selling them today. And, uh, but please, grab, uh, grab one of these. It's inspirational. I just want to read a couple of bits from here before, before we close. And uh, this is just after the torture that you actually got the Navy Cross for because you, uh, in the face of the escape attempt and everything. I saw my life all over again in a few seconds, from that conversion experience in college all the way through to shoot down. In all that time, I had assumed Christ was in me, making of me a kind of model person in morality, good citizenship, love of country, family, and all the rest of it. But now I was struck with the fact that I had not entered into the sufferings of Christ in all that time. I had lived on the good times of Christianity, but I had never been tested by pain as he had been, and the, dimension of my, and the dimension missing in my life was tied directly to that. In my befogged mind and with the pulse of pain through me, I sensed that maybe God was trying to say something to me, that maybe there was something bigger, more real, more valuable than simply being the eternal optimist or the one who gave the most to the game. Had I really given the most? Up to now, I knew I hadn't. It struck me then that God must have led me here, let me get shot down, that I might now enter into the totality of what it was all about to be in him. And in my feeble way again, I said, Lord, it's all yours. Whatever this means, whatever it is supposed to accomplish in me, whatever you have in mind now with all of this, it's all yours. That was all I could say. That was all I had, the mental strength to frame. I knew it wasn't much, but I meant it. 
It was the first time I had ever prayed so straight, so directly, so meaningfully. Whatever commitment I had given to him up until then had never brought me from me a prayer of surrender like that. I was totally willing now to accept whatever he had in mind. And then after that prayer, this is recovering from the most intense torture that anyone, and it, reading it was like reading about Good Friday. He said, nothing at all miraculous happened and I wasn't really expecting anything, but in the next minute or so, I became aware of the fact that the ropes were taken off my arms. The wet cords wrapped around my bare chest were removed. I remained there on my knees a long time, waiting, wondering, my eyes half shut. I kept saying to myself that there must be something worse coming. There was no reason for them to release me like this. They had already killed one prisoner in torture and I was practically gone now, so there was no reason for them to let up on me, but they did. I was not hallucinating now. I checked to be sure. Yes, I was out of those ropes. My arms were numb and there was pain, but I was free. How? Why? I waited for some explanation, but none came. And as I fell forward, too weak to stay kneeling, dropping down into my own blood and wastes, it suddenly seemed that the 15-watt bulb was turning on a glow of warmth within me. It was God. It had to be. I was alone, all the grim horrors of the past days and nights still with me. But now I had a moment of peace. I didn't know how to absorb the immensity of the moment, the sheer dimension of it, the mystery of it, or the reality of it as well. I don't know how long I lay there, drawing on that aura of the presence of God. It's an extraordinary story of God with us in and through our suffering. And it is an absolute honor to have you both with us here today. Red and Dorothy, we salute you today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. We've got you a little, we've, basically, we, we've, got a, we, we've got you a little care package there. Everything you, your hearts could desire that's got HTC written on it. And, um, and uh, there's all sorts of fun things in there. And there's just a little gift to take this lovely lady out for a real slap-up dinner and have some fun together. God bless you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Let's stay standing for a moment, shall we? And let's, and let's pray as we close our service together. Heavenly Father, the last few weeks we've been looking at this whole subject of suffering and perseverance and purpose in life, even through the darkest times. Lord, we thank you so much for Red and for Dorothy extraordinary story of your presence your presence holding us Lord you've been listening to Faith with Haith if you've been inspired by the story of endurance and love then please do subscribe and rate and review the podcast but most of all please share this episode with someone you know who needs to hear that there is always hope. 
May God bless you as you step into this new year. And remember, there is nothing, nothing that you will encounter this year that is more powerful than God's love for you. So stay safe. Let's walk on. Much love.